This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. So hi, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. Today, we are going to be discussing controller risks in Oxford Economics, Africa Risk Reward Index, or ARI as we like to call it. ARI is an annual report jointly done by controller risks and Oxford Economics, and it really seeks to track the evolution of the investment landscape in major African markets. What we try to do here is provide an outlook for the key trends shaping investment on the continent. Each year, our teams at Control Risk and at Oxford Economics assign a rating. One is on a risk rating, the other one is on a reward to try and evaluate how a range of African economies are looking in the coming year. On the risk side, we look at political dynamics and political outlooks. And on the reward side, we evaluate the economic potential of various countries. Before we get into the meat of the report and its finding, let me introduce my colleagues who will be joining me today to discuss the report. From Control Risks, we are joined by Tristan and Rose, who are Control Risks Country Risks Analysts based in Paris and Nairobi, respectively. And from Oxford Economics, we're joined by Jack, who is the head of Macro for Africa. He will also be lending his expertise during uh, our conversations. So thank you all for being here. As we set up for the rest of the discussion, Jacques, maybe you can talk us through some of the findings of this year's Risk-Reward Index. Sure. Thanks, Patricia. So uh, this year's report, again, highlights some interesting dynamics. Just to uh, mention a few of those highlights, on the reward side, we've seen significant improvements for Zambia, Uganda, and Senegal. So in the latter two, the positive economic growth prospects are driven by a more positive outlook for their oil and gas sectors, uh, especially Senegal, which is due to begin production in 2024 already. Uh, Meanwhile, Zambia's securing of a debt relief deal with its creditors has also boosted its growth prospects. Then on the other side, we've seen deteriorations in the risk profiles of some of the uh, larger markets, including South Africa, where energy supply shortages are proving difficult to manage. And meanwhile, Egypt and Ghana's economic challenges have constrained growth and heightened political stability risks uh, over the past year in those two countries. Thank you so much, Jack. And as usual with our ARI reports, not only do we have the index part of the report, we also identify three key themes that we believe are going to shape the investment landscape in the coming year. So this year, our first theme explores how African countries are navigating today's more polarized geopolitical landscape, in particular looking at how some of them have managed to gain some benefits through these geopolitical players, but also highlight some key risks that some countries have faced. Our second theme looks at the changing shape of interventions in security crises across the continent. And finally, our third theme turns to the financial services sector in Africa, noting the role that regional banks and local fintechs are playing in propelling financial inclusion and bridging financial access gaps. So on to the meat of the report. I'll start by laying out our first theme, which looks at the profits and pitfalls of political polarization. Quite a mouthful, as you could imagine. So in this theme, what we look at is essentially how uh, African countries are being used as a sphere of influence by big geopolitical players. 
and by that I mean everyone from the US and China through to Russia, as well as the emerging or so-called middle powers, the likes of the Gulf countries as well as Turkey. So far, African countries are resisting any pressure to align with one geopolitical player or another. And we've seen this in the way that they are engaging with various countries who are sending delegations. For example, um, the US in the past year alone has really ramped up its engagement with African countries and is looking to secure some deals, especially with Southern African economies, which interestingly do have access to critical minerals as well. But not to be left behind, we've actually seen more engagement from other geopolitical players, including the likes of the EU, who are pursuing more collaborative um, partnerships also in the sphere of critical minerals with several African countries. But all of this pales in comparison to the engagement that China has had with Africa over the past uh, few decades, especially in the infrastructure space. Although we anticipate that Chinese engagement with Africa is going to shift significantly owing to economic issues in China and a little bit more inward focus of the Chinese authorities, they are still going to be quite a large player in the commercial space in Africa. So while some countries are benefiting on the balance, others are finding it a little bit difficult. And what comes to mind for me is the issue that South Africa has faced. South Africa has been traditionally more reluctant to align either way, but in May this year it found itself at the center of this geopolitical storm when it was accused of being used as a conduit for Russian arms by US authorities. Although that has kind of died down right now, it did damage uh, South Africa's uh, relationships with Western economies at a time when it really does need Western and foreign investment into its energy sector which, as Jack mentioned in the beginning, is lagging or is proving to be a lag on its economy. But so I can bring other people into this conversation, maybe I'll start with you, Rose. You're based in Nairobi and you're our lead analyst on, on DRC. How have you seen geopolitics affect both of these markets? Yeah, so both countries have been affected quite a bit by um, geopolitics and especially DRC. You know, it has historically had stronger trade relationships with China, but the new president, well, he's not longer new, but President Felix Tshisekedi has um, engaged more with the U.S. And as part of that, he's tried to capitalize on the desire of the U.S. to erode China's influence over critical minerals um, in Congo. So we've seen him become a bit more bolder in his engagement with Chinese investors. Part of that, there's been some, you know, Chinese companies facing uh, export suspensions. On the back of that, the government has been able to renegotiate some of the contracts. But at the same time, Tsikiti has been careful not to upset or significantly upset um, the dynamics with China. And so in as much as he's under pressure to renegotiate some of the larger contracts with Chinese state-owned mining companies, he has been very careful to do that in a collaborative manner. And so um, we don't anticipate the balancing to be that difficult and yeah, if he'll continue benefiting from it. On Kenya's side, it's a, it's a bit less complicated. Kenya has historically managed to balance the, the, the relationship between China and, and the U.S. Uh, quite well. And recently we've seen uh, President William Ruto try to capitalize more on the desire of the U.S. to engage with African countries uh, on climate issues. We've seen Kenya try um, to preserve its, its position as a champion for global warming and other climate issues by hosting events and on the back of that, of course, obtaining some investments from, from the U.S. and other um, Western partners. So yeah, the, the two countries have, I would say, benefiting from, from the geopolitics. Great. Thank you so much, Rose. That's really interesting. And I guess 
a lot of our listeners will probably be wondering what does this mean for their own operations or their planned investments in the African continent. I think we've we've narrowed it down into two buckets. One is that in certain sectors that there is going to be a, an array of opportunities for investors. There's a lot of competition, as, as Rose has highlighted, especially in the mineral and mining space, and especially in those countries that have significant reserves of critical minerals. We see these as being high potential for investment, and not just in the mining space. There is quite a dearth of infrastructure, which means that a lot of African countries will be looking for investors in this space as well. The second side of things is potentially navigating some some missteps that some African countries have made. So as I mentioned, South Africa being one of the ones that is now being perceived as perhaps too close to Russia and is unnerving Western investors. This will place companies in some pretty awkward positions because now they have to navigate a rising amount of potential export controls, trade restrictions, and, and potentially even sanctions. So geopolitics is not something interesting to just watch and and look at from the news headlines, but it's definitely something that companies should be monitoring quite closely. Next up, I'll move on to our second theme and bring Tristan into the conversation. You'll have noticed we haven't really talked about geopolitics in the Francophone African sphere. And that's because geopolitics is shaping up quite differently in that part of Africa. Tristan, if I can bring you in here. What are your thoughts? Hi, Patricia. Thank you, everyone. Yes, so similarly to some of the themes we already explored about uh, some level of geopolitical polarization and new challenges emerging for businesses, we've decided to dedicate the second theme of ARI on some of the reshuffling of security provision and military intervention that we're seeing taking place uh, across the continent and most particularly in West Africa and the Sahel, which is is a, a really good example of how we're seeing this reshuffling and realignment take place, particularly with the decline of traditional actors and the emergence of new players. So this theme will focus on 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 some, I guess, a few key sections. The first one has been, as I mentioned, the declining role of what we're seen as the main providers and players of security and intervention field in Africa, which had been the UN and France, um, and how this is kind of creating space for a new era of African-led security interventions that we're seeing take place in West Africa, but also um, in, in East and Southern Africa as well. But these also have their own shortcomings and challenges, and have also kind of created a new gap and void that is increasingly being filled by new players such as private military companies or countries like Rwanda. To start, I will start with the Sahel, which again is a very good, I guess, example of this political realignment where we've seen the role of the UN uh, and France really kind of going through a big transformation and decline in the last few years, both because of a crisis of legitimacy and also some internal dynamics in African countries and political changes, both in terms of the government and the local populations. The UN has been the key security provider for Africa, lending intervention in the region, and still half of the peacekeeping missions today take place in Africa. But in the last few years, it's really gone through a crisis of legitimacy due to its kind of lack of results. At the same time, France, also a key provider of security in Africa and a lead 
kind of intervention country has also undergone a similar process where its legitimacy and image, particularly in West Africa, where he has been the most influential, has really been on the decline. Its inability to stop militancy in the Sahel, despite very heavy military involvement since 2012, has come under intense criticism. And at the same time, his perceived paternalistic approach and has also been increasingly criticized by its local partners. Alongside those two issues of legitimacy for both the UN and France, what we're seeing is a political shift on a domestic level. One of them is increasing nationalism and sovereignty among, you know, West African, but also other African populations. And this has kind of driven a lot of fatigue and in some cases animosity towards, you know, foreign actors, whether that is France or even UN intervention. The second key dynamic explaining this kind of growing uh, rejection of traditional foreign intervention has been successive coups that we've seen taking place in West Africa since 2020, where local military juntas that have taken power in countries like Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, or Guinea have capitalized on this growing anti-French sentiment and, and nationalism to bolster their own position and have taken steps to move away from their traditional partners and operate this political realignment in the major cases to the profit of countries like Russia or, you know, other players such as Turkey, for example. And this has really had quite a strong impact in terms of, you know, France in particular losing a lot of influence in the region. With this drop and the role of, you know, the UN and France, um, this has obviously created a lot of opportunity for other players to emerge. One thing that we're exploring in, in quite a lot of details in this article is the increasing role taken by African governments and regional-led intervention. Um, we can take the example of the African Union intervention in Somalia, the multinational joint task force around Lake Chad, or even most recently the ACDC intervention in Mozambique. Whilst those operations and initiatives have had some success in terms of counterinsurgency, they've also proven quite challenging. And that is because political rivalry among participating countries, but issues around uh, funding particularly, have really proven challenging to kind of provide a sustainable and coherent response to some very complex security crisis on the continent. And, you know, despite those missions having some successes, they also, you know, proving they also showed that they have some shortcomings that are kind of unable to respond effectively to some expanding crisis, for example, in the Sahel, but also in, in, in Mozambique or, or Central African Republic. So, as I mentioned, regional interventions have kind of growing in importance with uh, this new doctrine of you know African solutions for African problems, but they've also proven not to be kind of a silver bullet to more and more complex security crises. So what we've seen as well, and that would be a, another key part of our article, is the emergence of other players and more bilateral solutions. So one of them has been the increasing footprint of the Russian private military Wagner Group, which whose footprint in Africa has been growing exponentially since 2017 in countries like Central African Republic, Sudan, and Mali most recently. And that has been accompanied as well by growing business interest of companies linked to the Wagner Group in Russia, particularly in the mining sector, which again, you know, provides new challenges for business operators, which we're also exploring the theme. 
The other point has been also as part of the geopolitical realignments of countries like Mali or Central African Republic and most recently Niger. Uh, Wagner has also acted as an entry point for the growing influence of Russia and increasing partnership between local governments and Russia. That said, the Wagner Group has also shown its limits and there are growing concerns about its human rights track record due to some of its brutal methods in, in, in combating insurgencies and the issues related to sanctions and integrity that its presence poses for local business operators. Given this, another key player that has emerged uh, in the security field in Africa has been Rwanda, which has also led to successful in intervention in Central African Republic and Mozambique, and is kind of gradually emerging as uh, kind of the new key player in security provision. And I will let my colleague Rose um, expand a bit more on that. Yeah, so like Tristan said, Rwanda has really um, become a major player in terms of regional peacekeeping or security. And of course, some of the motivations behind this are political and first there's the need for Rwanda to kind of position itself um, diplomatically, first to help um, facilitate its socioeconomic development agenda, but also to help the president, Paul Kagame, better navigate some of the governance and human rights criticism that he faces. So that's one of you know the areas where we've seen Rwanda um, leverage its peacekeepers or its security intervention to, for example, avoid widespread sanctions and things like that. There's also the economic uh, motivations because in a lot of these countries we've seen Rwanda successfully negotiate for investment deals on the back of some of the security operations in countries like Mozambique, Central African Republic, and a lot of these center on the agricultural sector because of, you know, the land pressures in Rwanda and the need to, for example, secure agricultural land in other areas. So we've seen the two factors, both political and economic, shape the way in which Rwanda intervenes in the region. Thank you, Rose, and thank you, Tristan. So one small follow-up for you, Rose. So I guess we shouldn't view Rwanda's increasing role as perhaps all benevolent. Is that correct to say? Yeah, I would agree with that. It's not all benevolent. Of course, there's the need, or rather there's the fact that Rwandan security forces have gained a really good reputation for, for example, discipline, and there's been some military successes. And... You know, the, it's in the interest of Rwanda to, for example, help secure um, stability in some of these countries. But also, uh, like I said, there's some other factors that might not be so benevolent driving this intervention. And we can also see this in you know, the countries that Rwanda chooses to intervene in. They are likely to intervene um, so openly and so enthusiastically in places like you know, DRC, Burundi, even South Sudan. They'd rather go to countries that are a bit farther from their territory. Okay, that's fascinating. Thank you so much, Rose. And if I can throw it back to you, Tristan, I mean, obviously, this is an evolving, complex security dynamic that many African countries are going through or navigating. So what does this mean, actually, for, for companies that are either evaluating investments in specific African jurisdictions or those that are already operating on the continent? Thank you, Patricia. I think the implications are very similar to the one that you mentioned earlier, where we're kind of expecting and anticipating this greater need for businesses to monitor the situation much more closely. And we're seeing much more, I guess, entangling of both operational and political risk with business risks. And the reason for that is that as the security environment become much more complex, due to the multiplication of actors and the reshuffling of traditional actors. We're also seeing 
business and political risks evolve at the same time. And what I mean by that is that, for example, as Western military and security influence declines, particularly in West Africa, we're also likely to see Western companies, and particularly the French, gradually lose some of their commercial advantage than they, that they used to, to possess in those countries. And that will also open the door for new players, particularly as countries like you know, Mali, Burkina Faso, who have kind of gone through this process of geopolitical realignment and, and, and looking at other security partners, that will also open the door for companies and business interests from those countries, whether that's be, you know, Russia, China, Turkey, or other countries to also enter the field. And that would present one challenge for traditional business players. I guess the other challenge for some of those companies is due to growing uh, nationalism and uh, I guess the increasing importance of sovereignty for local populations and local governments, that would be the need for some of the companies to give additional effort and focus on localizing some of their operation to avoid the kind of pitfalls of, you know, criticism from local populations and local governments. I think as well, something that's worth noting is that as the security field becomes more complex and we're seeing rebel groups, local governments, regional interventions or, or, or bilateral interventions, whether like Ronda or the Wagner group, conflict resolution is likely to become also more complex and conflicts are going to be become increasingly hard to read and predict uh, due to the multiplication of actors. And that's also going to prove challenging for businesses. And I think the last point, more on a business standpoint, and this is something that we're already seeing in countries like in countries in the Sahel, is that companies will kind of have to tiptoe a little bit and, and, and have to provide additional effort to remain neutral as some of the realignment and reshuffling processes are taking place on the political level because companies do not want to get caught in the middle uh, between, you know, geopolitical tensions between host countries and traditional security providers. And I think the issue as well is as new actors enter the field, companies will also have to navigate growing and, and, and emerging integrity and reputational risks as they continue to operate in those countries or, or increase their footprint. Thanks so much, Tristan. It sounds like security issues and actually broader geopolitical concerns should and will continue to be at the forefront of companies' minds in the coming year. And so that we end on a more positive note, let's turn to our final theme, which focuses on the financial services sector. We've optimistically titled it Financing for the Future. Jacques, perhaps I can turn to you now to talk us through the theme. Sure, yes. Uh, it is ending on an optimistic note because this is a bright spot and it's a bright spot for several reasons. Firstly, uh, we have seen real progress in access to financial services. You know, access continues to grow across the continent. Secondly, the catalytic impact of financial services means that this is also leading to deeper and broader economic sophistication. And then finally, growth and development in the sector has in large part been driven by homegrown champions. So just to unpack this latter point in a bit more detail, Africa-based financial institutions are steadily consolidating their dominance in Africa's financial services industry. Uh, these institutions primarily stem from uh, the region's economic powerhouses, so South Africa, Egypt, uh, Nigeria, Morocco, and Kenya. And they still seem pretty bullish about their further growth prospects in the continent. For example, South Africa-based Standard Bank, which is Africa's largest bank by assets, is considering expanding into North Africa, 
While research suggests that uh, Moroccan banks enjoy a market share of at least 20% uh, in the West African ECOWAS block, and there too they expect to expand further into that region, it's also important to note that this expansion in financial services has taken on a uniquely African character. As we've seen over the past decade or so, access to telecommunication services has proliferated much quicker than access to formal financial services. But in Africa in recent years, we've seen sort of a blurring in the lines between access to telecoms and access to financial services. And this blurring of the lines is due to the lack of infrastructure needed to replicate the financial systems that we see in advanced economies. So this, in turn, has accelerated the adoption of mobile and digital banking services across the continent. Because, you know, you don't need a bank branch or ATM. Uh, You just need a phone and it doesn't have to be a smartphone. Consequently, mobile money services have made more inroads in Africa than in any other region, with some West African countries, specifically uh, Senegal, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, leading the way. And in fact, there seems to be an inverse relationship between the maturity of a country's financial sector and that country's uptake of mobile money services. So this is indicative of the need and often a desire to leapfrog traditional financial infrastructure. Just to illustrate this point, the value of mobile money transactions in South Africa, which of course has the continent's most sophisticated financial sector, equates to uh, under 1% of GDP, while the corresponding figures for Senegal and Ghana are well above 100% of GDP. It's also important to note that this embrace of online and mobile banking has not happened by chance, and it was by no means inevitable. Uh, African financial institutions and telecom companies have put in the hard work and have been on the forefront of ease of access innovations and investors, both foreign and domestic, have piled into the continent's fintech sector. Uh, To put some numbers on this, African tech startup funding exceeded 3 billion US dollars for the first time ever last year, and nearly half of this funding was directed towards uh, fintech startups. Uh, Bigger international players also increasingly taking note, and this was most recently demonstrated when MasterCard in August announced a minority investment in the fintech division of uh, MTN. Now, an important reason why we've seen this innovation across the continent is the fact that regulators have been broadly supportive of financial services reforms and innovations, and this is, of course, in recognition of the importance of expanding access to financial services and the opportunity to leapfrog traditional infrastructure and become global leaders in these areas. This then, of course, requires uh, striking a a very difficult balance between allowing innovation and further financial inclusion on the one hand, while also uh, protecting consumers and preventing illicit activities in the sector on the other. And this is a balance that is, uh, first of all, very difficult to strike, And it's also something that requires constant uh, monitoring and attention. As these innovations take off, uh, regulations have to change. So the grey listing of Nigeria and South Africa by the Financial Action Task Force earlier this year just sort of highlights that the growth in the continent's financial services industry has not come without risks. And in fact, of the 26 countries that are currently on the Financial Action Task Force grey list, 11 of them are from Africa. So 
Although governments will take steps to prevent the proliferation of illicit flows and step up their security of transactions, the process will be slow given limited capacity among regulators. So there's no doubt that you know financial services is an exciting space with a lot of potential, but investors in the sector will find themselves under close scrutiny and subject to variations in compliance or reporting requirements which is an important but a very manageable risk. Great. Thank you so much, Jacques. And I suppose if we could dig deeper into maybe one of the markets that's looking quite exciting these days. Rose, uh, we know that Kenya Safaricom is entering into neighboring Ethiopia. Do we see that as perhaps opening opportunities for further investment by foreign companies uh, into the financial services sector there? Yes, I think it's definitely an opportunity especially because, you know, the financial services and the telecom sectors have both been a very um, closed off to foreign participation, typically in Ethiopia. And with the entrance of Safaricom, it's underlining the desire of the Ethiopian government, for example, boost um, financial inclusion, but also kind of support um, the efforts to improve telecoms infrastructure. And so on the back of that, there's going to be a lot of investment and a need for investing in, you know, infrastructure development when it comes to telecoms, but also things like payment systems, because that's one of the areas that are seen as major barriers to financial inclusion, especially when it comes to SMEs in, in Ethiopia. So on the back of that, we've seen the government adopt a more inclusive or friendly attitude towards foreign participation in both the financial services and the telecom sector. And in as much as they want or the government wants to protect the interests of, you know, the state-owned telecoms company, EFI Telecom, they've tried to, for example, grant more concessions to some of the larger players like Exafaricom, for example, by allowing them to, you know, offer mobile money services, even though the financial services sector itself is still not open to foreign or private participation. So that's definitely a positive. And it's also going to encourage more regulatory reforms over the, the next few years. And this is a positive because there's a lot of uncertainty, especially when it comes to some of the technical aspects of regulation in both the telecoms and the financial services sector. So we expect that this is going to lead to more clarity. Of course, there will still be some issues, um, partly because of, you know, like I said, the, the government wants to protect its own interests. But overall, I think it will help address some of the major regulatory issues. Okay, thank you, Rose. And Jacques, if I may just ask a a follow-up question there. So one of the biggest kind of more exciting things that's happening on the continent is the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. Uh, Do you think that is going to have an impact on the financial services sector and its attractiveness for investment? Yes, I definitely think so. That's something that's often overlooked about the Africa Free Trade Agreement is that there's also agreement on uh, services. So it's not just about merchandise trade. We also want to create uh, you know, a bigger market for services and for financial services in particular that won't just benefit from more uniform or harmonized regulation, but just if we do look just at merchandise trade, you know, funding of that trade, and just the sort of, as I said, the catalytic function of financial services in economic growth, the financial services industry is going to benefit a lot from just regional integration, deeper regional integration, because financial services is going to sort of be the lubricant for that integration. So I do think that the trade agreement, you know, it's so far, there hasn't been a lot of progress, but I think we most people were a bit over optimistic about how quick we would see progress but once we do start seeing progress i think the financial services would be one of the first sectors to benefit from deeper integration okay great thank you jacques 
And on that note, we are coming to the end of our podcast. So I want to go around and do some final thoughts, starting first with you, Tristan. If you were to pick one country that for you is the brightest spot for investment in the coming year, what country would that be and why? I would probably have to give it between Côte d'Ivoire and Senegal, not particularly original, but both in terms of the reforms that have been done, the stable political and security environment, despite some ups and downs in terms of protest and unrest, I, I think right now in West Africa probably present the most favorable environment. Great, thank you. Ruth, on your end? On my end, and perhaps maybe originally, I would pick, um, of course, Kenya with the new president, William. Well, he's not so new anymore, but President William Ruto is really keen to boost um, foreign direct investment because of some of the pressures that he's facing. And that means that the government will be more willing to, for example, precipitate some of the lagging reforms in sectors such as mining and energy. And that, you know, is good for investment in general. And I would also say perhaps DRC, despite its challenges, I think there's more understanding by the government of how much political stability influences our foreign investment and how helping businesses navigate these issues can help um, the government achieve its goals. So we've seen more and more deliberate measures by the authorities to address some of the issues that investors are facing in a more comprehensive manner. I also address some of the macroeconomic issues like, you know, currency issues and things like that. Of course, progress will be slow, but I think it's a definitely a positive sign um, for a country like the RC. Great. Thanks, Rose. And Jack, over to you. Sure. I'm going to have to agree with Rose. I'm pretty bullish about East Africa, just given the favorable policy developments that we've seen. So Rose has discussed Kenya. I think Tanzania also warrants a mention. There's been a complete institutional overhaul, basically, uh, over the past like five years. So that's very positive for that. And then also when just considering the market size of East Africa, you know, the big populations of Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Ethiopia also is increasingly opening up to foreign participation. So I think in East Africa, there's going to be a lot of big investment opportunities going forward. Great. Thank you, Jacques. And thank you all for your insights. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed our discussion on the Africa Risk Reward Index and the three main themes. The full report can be downloaded from our website. And we look forward to speaking with you on some other occasion. Thank you very much and goodbye. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.